You guys can turn around and grab your Bibles and remain standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today, as you may have guessed. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31 of Matthew chapter 9. And the Word of God reads, And Jesus, or as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David! When He entered the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to Him, Yes, Lord. Then He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. And they went away and spread His fame through all that district. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You will bless the reading of Your Word this morning as we come and and gather to learn of You and uh, to learn more about our Savior, Jesus. God, we oftentimes get caught up in, in theology and, and doctrine and, and application and, and interpretation and things like that and we, we forget or we move past Jesus. And I pray that as we come to this passage this morning that we will again center our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and His work for us. God, we thank You that in Your, in your sovereignty you, you put into place a plan in which Your Son would come and be the mediator between us and You. God, He, he came and He was and is the perfect prophet who spoke Your Word with clarity and inerrancy, who is literally Your Word incarnate in human flesh, come to Your people. God, we thank You for this. We thank You that Jesus is our great High Priest who mediates the new covenant between You and us, between You and Your people, that He does not have to uh, sacrifice lambs and sheep and goats and bulls, but that He came and, and was Himself the sacrifice for our sin so that we could be reconciled back to You. God, we thank You that Jesus is the King of kings, that He rules over us with a rule that is, that is loving, a rule of compassion and, and mercy and freedom. Lord, I pray that as we would leave here today, that we would proclaim that rule to the world uh, and proclaim your kingdom where you rule and, and reign with authority. God, I pray for our church family here as we've, we've all come from different places this week and we've been a part of different things and different situations and different jobs and different family experiences and, and we come together as a group of people uh, united by one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit 
that dwells inside of us and unites us. And I pray that you would just um, join us together with that unity this morning. Lord, I, I know that we have come and we have loved ones who are sick. We have uh, jobs that are on the line. We have bills to pay. We have uh, friend relationships that are on the rocks. We have stresses and anxieties and everything that comes along with this life. We all bring this with us this morning. And I pray that for this time, you would just comfort us and allow us to sit in uh, your presence and uh, be encouraged by what your word has to say to us this morning. I do want to lift up to you the Tunai people of Somalia who are completely unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, they are a Muslim people. They are very religious, but they don't know Jesus like we know Jesus. They don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, they have been duped into believing a lie and they worship a demon rather than the one true God. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a missionary, someone who would go to those people with a love for those people and, and share the gospel with those people so that they could have the scriptures in their language, so that they could worship together like we do every week and like we often take advantage of. God, I pray for persecuted Christians all over the world this morning that you would strengthen your church. We know that you have promised your church will be built. And so we take comfort in that. And we, we join together as just one small local expression of that church to, to study your word. And I pray that you would uh, bless our time together and that we would uh, love Jesus more when we leave here today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So last week, by way of introduction, I went back to the end of chapter 4 of Matthew and we, we just kind of traced out Matthew's trajectory from the end of chapter 4 to chapter 9 where, where we're studying right now. And we've done this several times. We've covered the theme of the authority of Jesus his authority in word and deed and how we get to see what He says and we watch what He does and we're seeing that authority. And then last week we looked again and we just went back to the beginning of chapter 8 and we just looked at those specific miracles that He had done so that we don't forget uh, all the things that He has accomplished or that Matthew has, has shown us in his gospel. Um, and for many of the miracles that we've looked at, we've found out as we dig a little deeper that they all have sort of a, a spiritual connection. That they are physical things, but they also have a connection that will, will go a little deeper for us if we'll take the time and, and study those things. Um, especially, like we saw last week, when they have connections to the Old Testament uh, purity laws, we learned that those laws that are strange to us oftentimes point us to our sin. God is holy. He has to be separated from sin. And just like a physical defilement, we have a, a spiritual defilement that separates us. And so we, we kind of see those spiritual connections. And anytime we read of the Old Testament Levitical law, we should be reminded that God is holy and He is righteous and we are not. And we need a mediator to, to join us to God. And of course, Jesus comes as that mediator. We have a holy God and a sinful people and He comes as fully God and fully man and joins us, reconciles us to the Father. And, and as He 
has come and he's began this earthly ministry. We're watching his miracles. We're seeing that he kind of goes against the grain of the religion of his day. So he comes in and he touches a leper, which we know you weren't supposed to do. He comes and he takes hold of the hand of Peter's mother-in-law, which in that time the religious leader said, you don't touch people with the fever because you might get the fever and that makes you unclean. And He's touched by the woman with the discharge of blood. He takes the hand of Jairus' daughter and raises her to life. He can remove those defilements. He can come in contact with them without catching them himself. He's not susceptible to the, the same uh, ailments that we are and that is because he is God and man. And that we saw really clearly in, in the, the, where Jesus calms the storm. You know, He is a man. He gets onto a boat with other men and they're on a boat in the sea and he dozes off. He's sleeping. And then he awakes and he calms a storm. And he gets to Gadara and he says a word and casts out demons. And, and they're gone. And so we're seeing that Jesus is, is a man. He goes places. He lives on the earth. He, he communes with people. But He's God. Storms listen to Him. Demons listen to Him. The dead are raised. He forgives sins. All these things are things that only God can do. And So we're seeing this over and over. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. He relates to us intimately and closely. And yet He is deity and high and, and lofty. And we saw last week that He's has the power over death. Not just physical death, but even spiritual death. He has the keys to both of those. And, and we all find ourselves subject to spiritual death. And so that is encouraging to us, or it should be. And the spiritual uh, correlations with these miracles, again, if we, if we think about them, they're, they're almost unmistakable. You can't read these miracles without seeing that they all point straight to some sort of spiritual truth or a spiritual reality. And if we don't notice that, what we will begin to see is Jesus is God. And we'll stop there. Now that's true. And you do away with that doctrine, you, you've, you've gone into apostasy. So we have to agree, Jesus is God, but He's also man. We have to always keep that in, in our minds. So we affirm the deity of Christ. But then we realize that there is this part of Jesus that connects to us as individuals. So we read this and we say, sure, He healed that leper. Sure, He healed that paralytic. Sure, He calmed that storm. He raised that dead girl. But this was, you know, 2,000 plus or minus years ago. I'm here Jesus is God. That's great. How does that encourage me right now as a physical human being living in, in 2014? And if we don't remember, wait, He's also he's God and He's also man. These things are physical in that day and yet they're also spiritual. They're pointing to spiritual truths. So I'm trying to draw this, this picture here because the spiritual nature of what Jesus is doing is that which transcends time. When we understand the spiritual aspect of it, that's the part, the Holy Spirit, that's the part we have. That's what connects us to the, the first century. So in all these miracles, we're seeing that His healing ministry, the things that He done physically in, in time and space on the earth, were foreshadowing a greater work. 
that he would do. They weren't just physical healings. They were that, but they foreshadowed something bigger that he would eventually accomplish. That's what we saw when, with the, the centurion. When he, he heals the, the servant of the centurion, but then he goes into this thing about Jews and Gentiles. This is what's happening here. This little picture is much bigger than, than what we've seen before. He quotes Isaiah 53, and we realize this is not just about physical healing. This, is, this has spiritual implications. So, when Jesus comes, when He's incarnate on the earth, He comes, He ushers in the kingdom of heaven. He brings it with Him. The kingdom of heaven is not something only eschatological or, or end times focused. That's eschatology, the study of the end times. It's not just to come, it's now. So when He came, He ushered in the kingdom of God, and it's here, but it's still to come. Now, we've used this phrase already, but not yet. That's where we are now. So this kingdom that He ushered in, and yet is still to come, we've seen as a global kingdom, people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth, Gentiles and Jews, Ultimately, it will be a kingdom where the effects of sin like leprosy and paralysis and fevers and storms and demons and death will no longer exist. So with these miracles, we're seeing little pictures of what the kingdom will look like in the future. They're all pointing to something bigger. They're physical pictures that point to spiritual realities that concern sin, death, the curse, salvation, we put this into our categories of redemptive history. You have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we can look at these miracles and see the relationship. God created things good and then there's sin and the fall. And because of sin, there's paralysis and demons and evil and death and, and discharges of blood and laws. And Jesus comes as a, as a little piece of this redemption. He's, he's redeeming these things and He's saying, in effect, this is what it's going to ultimately be like when the kingdom is fully consummated. He's restoring small things. And these spiritual truths that all these miracles are, are pointing us to apply to us as individuals. They apply to us as a church. They are encouraging as we see and we look forward to what will happen in the future. So don't, don't miss those connections. All, all of that introduction was, was to say, make sure we understand that these miracles were true things that really happened, but they also have spiritual uh, implications that they're pointing to that, that affect us in, in the here and the now. They may also be used as you run into other people and God works through you to address these issues with other people and these passages. So today, in this passage, the same is still true. We're looking at two blind men. Many times in Scripture, our depravity, our inability to bring ourselves to God, our sin is related to blindness and darkness. Because we are spiritually blind, we can't see the sinfulness of our hearts. We can't see the goodness of God. We can't comprehend the beauty of Christ because we're spiritually blind naturally. We need to be given spiritual sight. We need to be brought we just read from Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. The God of this world, we read, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. See that, that connection, there's blind, but it's, it's a spiritual thing. God has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God. It shines and we can see. The Lord will bring to light things that are now hidden in darkness. All these things are in Scripture. Our spiritual condition is very often spoken of metaphorically with the, the, the pictures of sight and light. Or, or lights coming on and then we can see. And when we're still in sin and without Christ, we're blind and we're in darkness and we can't see. So, sight and light and blindness and darkness are used as these spiritual metaphors to teach us spiritual truths. So, put that on the back of your mind, the back burner. Just keep that there. And we'll come back to that at the end. But just keep that in your mind as we walk through this passage. And you can do this. As we walk through it, just think about what this might look like spiritually. What's, what's the spiritual truth that we're learning here? So verse 27 again. Start there. It says, And Jesus passed on from there. Or as Jesus passed on from there. So Matthew, again, he's, he's keeping us up with the narration. Making sure we follow the story uh, in, in this day in the life of Jesus very busy day. We could probably assume that most days were like this for Jesus. He starts off in Gadara after calming a storm. Once in Gadara, he casts out this large number of demons and the people come and say, thank you, will you please leave? He goes back to where he came from, to Capernaum. He gets to Capernaum and multitudes of people are following him around. He's teaching them, answering questions. Sees Matthew there, calls Matthew to follow him. Then he goes and heals Jairus' daughter and the, the woman with the discharge of blood. That takes place. We pick up here. He passed on from there. He's just left the home of Jairus. And we're going to see in a minute that he's going back to the house that he's staying in. More than likely Peter's house there in Capernaum. Now, these things are important as we learn and we just get a good understanding of who Jesus is. Because a lot of times we think of Jesus as this long-haired hippie who sat on a hill of grass or on a rock and just, you know, people lined up and he gave them hugs and whispered nice things in their ear and that was all he did. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was a, a man's man. He was a worker. He worked every day of his life. He was a traveling evangelist, traveled on foot most of the time, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, mobs of people enveloping him all the time. All they wanted was free stuff just to see another miracle or to ask him questions to try to trick him up in his theology. If he ever wanted a long time, he had to sneak away to a desolate place. Jesus was a hard-working man, especially for the three years of his earthly ministry. And so he's, he's still walking. He's had this day. He, he is a human being. He's... He's getting tired. We see he's heading home. So he's walking. And two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Blind men. Judging by the number of blind men that Jesus heals in his ministry, it's easy to see that blindness was a popular problem in this day. Uh, sometimes people were born blind. In those situations, it says a man born blind. Um, other times, through uh, just lack of preventative care, um, bad health, uh, sand blowing around, sunlight, things like that, people became blind. And they, they didn't have any way to fix vision problems. And so people became blind. It was a common problem. Here we have two blind men traveling together. They were probably always together. Because being blind is bad enough. 
you know, being blind and alone would be even worse. So people like this would always couple up or hang out in groups and, and things like that. So you got these two blind men following Jesus as Jesus walks from the home of Jairus where he's just raised her daughter from the dead. They're following him and he's walking back to the house he's staying in, probably Peter's house. We don't know how far this is. He's walking. They're following and they're crying aloud. Literally, they're shrieking or screaming. The same word was used for the demoniac in Gadara who ran around shrieking and cutting himself like a maniac. This is how these guys are yelling out at Jesus. So, so they're, needless to say, they're, they're trying really hard to get his attention. Trying to get Jesus to, to look at them, to pay them attention. And they're saying, and this is, this is big, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. This phrase is is interesting, number one, and I think it plays a huge role in the point of this passage. Um, So I'm going to break this down slowly. Remember, we're drawing spiritual connections. So the way that they address Jesus, their plea may be very uh, beneficial for us to understand in our own uh, approach to to God or or to Christ. So, So think about this. They say, have mercy on us first. Have mercy on us. If you're using the King James Version, it says, uh, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. It's, it's backwards, but in Greek, it's have mercy on us, son of David. Which means, because it's first, that means it's emphatic. So their main point is, have mercy on us. Their primary concern is, we want to receive mercy from you Son of David. Now, on Easter Sunday, we were in 1 Peter. We saw this word mercy. We talked about mercy. Mercy is oftentimes used interchangeably with grace, but they mean different things when you get specific. And mercy means compassion, but more specifically, it denotes this outward manifestation of pity. And it assumes a need on behalf of the recipient. So it assumes that whoever needs mercy is, is lowly and needs something, and whoever is being asked for mercy or giving mercy is up high, and they're able to bestow this mercy. So they're asking Jesus, have mercy on us. They see Him as high, venerated, exalted, lifted up. You have the mercy, and we are lowly, and we need the mercy. So they ask for mercy first. Notice that they do not come and claim their gift. They do not come and and boldly affirm themselves to Jesus in order to to receive a manifestation of prosperity or healing. We'll see in a minute, and I I believe that they really are sincere, God-fearing men. They don't come to Jesus and say, hey, we are children of God. And... God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and and God uses gold to pave His streets and and so there's no reason why we should be blind and be suffering. We deserve a miracle. They don't say that. They don't even ask for a miracle. They're crying out for mercy. They're blind. They're asking for mercy. They realize we need mercy that comes down to us out of pity on our poor souls. That's what they're asking. We need mercy. We would all do better to learn how to approach the Lord in this way. We come to receive mercy. And they call Him Son of David. 
Now, you, you can probably see where this is going, but I want to point out the significance of this title. Um, Reformed theology is often also called covenant theology because we look at Scripture and we see that God, from the beginning of time and even before time, has related and worked by way of covenants. He makes covenants and He keeps them. And so, we go back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and God comes to him and He makes a covenant with Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. And He tells Abraham that you're going to have innumerable offspring. Your offspring will inhabit the promised land that, that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, from that moment in history, having already been told that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of Satan. We're looking for a seed. Then God comes to Abraham and says, through your offspring, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we begin to look for this seed from the offspring of Abraham who's going to bless the whole world. That's the covenant. And then Abraham has Isaac and the covenant goes down to Isaac and then Isaac has Jacob and the covenant's passed on to Jacob and then Jacob has 12 sons. In Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons and he gets to Judah, who is the fourth born son of the wife Jacob didn't even want. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And the scepter was that rod that a king would hold that symbolized his authority and power, the scepter. So Jacob, in this sort of prophecy promise on Judah, says the king will always come from the line of Judah. So now, we're awaiting a promised seed who comes from the tribe of Judah. It's getting narrower and narrower and narrower. We come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And this will be up here. This is what was spoken to King David by, from God. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring up after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there we kind of, we read that and we're like, okay, well Solomon built the temple, but Solomon didn't live forever. In this passage, we have what is known as the Davidic covenant. And God promises, I'm going to raise up a king from you, David, from your line, who will be on your throne forever. His kingdom will last forever. And then David died. And then Solomon died. And then all the kings of Israel, they're dead. They're no longer here. So now, we've narrowed this seed down from coming from the lineage of David. Or, or he must be a son of David. The problem is, the promised king will also have to live forever. He has to have a, a kingdom that lasts forever. So the promised king, the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3.15, will be a male born from a woman who was a descendant of Abraham, who was also from the tribe of Judah, who's also from the family line of David. I mean, this is getting really, really narrow, really specific. And then what do we read in the first verse of Matthew's Gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew's writing to show Jesus is that Messiah. And he starts off 
by showing Jesus fits the genealogical line from Abraham to David, and it comes all the way down to Jesus. So these blind men, they come up to Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're shouting, shrieking at the top of their lungs, and they're calling Him Son of David, or in other words, Messiah. This is the way the Old Testament uh, Jews would have understood the Messiah. He will be the Son of David, descended from David. It's another passage that, that is interesting here is in Isaiah 35. This will be up there. This is a chapter which is used to show what life will be like when the Messiah rules. And in verse 5 it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So these blind men, Jewish men, they knew the Messiah would be the son of David. They, they probably had heard, taught, and, and read to them if they were born blind. Isaiah, when the Messiah comes, He will open the eyes of the blind. They will see when the Messiah comes. And they have just referred to Jesus as the Messiah. That's what son of David means. To a Jew, that means Messiah. So you can imagine their excitement. These are blind men. They've heard this man, Jesus, is walking by and they're calling him Son of David. So verse 28 kind of takes a, a twist here. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Now that's strange. Because the blind men are following him, shouting out loud, crying for mercy, calling him the Son of David, calling him the Messiah, and Jesus just keeps walking. Like they're not there. He just, it's almost as if he pretends like he doesn't hear him at all. He just goes into the house, almost ignoring their cries. And it says they came to him. Now, I would take this to mean they came into the house. He just went into the house. They come into the house too. He's going to touch them here in a little bit, so they're close enough to, to touch. So they followed him into the house. He has yet to acknowledge them as they follow him. Very strange behavior. Once they get into the house, they, they, they came to Him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Again, this is, this is it's just funny. Put yourself here. They've just followed Jesus, crying, shrieking out loud, pleading for mercy, calling Him the Son of David. They've followed Him all the way to this house He's staying at. And the first thing He says is, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, we're good Bible students, so we say, why would He ask them this? And I believe it's because He wants to see just how much exactly they believe about Him. And He wants to get them to affirm it vocally, out loud. They obviously believe He's the Messiah. They've called Him the Son of David. They believe He's higher ranking than them because they've asked for mercy and mercy comes down in a, in, a, in, a, in a compassion towards pity. They believe these things strongly enough that they're just going to keep on going all the way into the house behind Him. And now He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? He wants them to profess with their mouth, to affirm His power and His authority. The same thing we've been talking about for, for weeks. 
He asked if they believe he is able. That is, do you believe that it is within my power to do this? He does not say, do you believe that I have connections with God and I can get you a miracle? Do you believe that I can pray and get the Father to heal you? No, he says, do you believe I am able to do this? And they have to answer, and in their answer, he's asking them to affirm, you, this man standing in front of me, has the power and the authority. You have this in and of yourself. It's yours to do this, to perform this deed. That's what he's getting them to affirm. He's drawing this out, and their answer is, they said to him, yes, Lord. We couldn't ask for a better profession of faith. The, the, the oxymoronic profession of faith is when, or, or statement is when Peter says, No, Lord. <laughs> that doesn't work. You don't say no and Lord. They say, Yes, Lord. They've already affirmed His Messiahship out loud. They've affirmed that He is high and they are low. He is, he is a lofty grandeur and they are low and in need of mercy and pity. Now with this answer, they affirm that He is powerful. He has authority over physical handicap. They affirm His Lordship. You rule over us. You say we do. We are subject to you. A profession of faith in Jesus Christ can be no less than this. Than what they've been able to say in just these little statements. Have mercy on us. Son of David. Yes, Lord. That's a profession of faith. These men would have known Exodus 4.11 The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Yahweh, is it not me, Yahweh, who makes people see? Is it not me, Yahweh, who makes people blind? And now they affirm this man, this Messiah, this Yahweh in the flesh, God in human flesh, has this authority. He has the power to make a blind person see or a seeing person blind. They have, through faith, affirmed and taken hold of Jesus Christ as He truly is. God, Lord, lofty, mighty, majestic, Messiah. In verse 29, it says, Then He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. So this time again, he touches them. Now we know he doesn't need to touch them, but he does. I don't think there's any spiritual thing here. He just touches them. They're there. He, he touches their eyes and he, he acknowledges their faith according to your faith. He's heard their cry. He heard what they called him. He's heard their profession. Yes, Lord. He realizes that they understand the relationship. We need mercy from you. They followed him all the way home into the house, so he's seen their faith in action. So he says, All right, sure, according to that faith, be it done to you. They asked for mercy. They believed in the one who could do this for them, and he heals them according to their faith. Verse 30 says, And their eyes were opened. So they were healed. Now, that's the general response we get when we read a passage like this. Actually, about the same response we got last week when we said Jesus raised somebody from the dead. We're, we're Bible people, most of us. We've been raised on these stories, especially after reading that He raised a person from the dead, calmed a storm, cast out demons. We get to, 
opening the eyes of the blind, and it's just like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. It sort of pales in comparison, but, but he comes and he restores that which was broken. Now, that's a big deal. But what he says next is, is what stands out here. This is what makes this story strange. And the rest of the verse, and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about it. And the, when he it says he sternly warned them, well, we read that and we just think like, you know, stern. But the word here really means he's mad. This is a response that someone would give because they're angry or they've seen something in someone that, that displeased them and made them react to them in a certain way. It's also used of a horse when it would uh, grunt or, or blow and when it's surprised or, or in a situation it doesn't want to be in. That's this word. He sternly warned them. Now we think of Jesus, you know, our Jesus sitting on a hill and daisies hugging people. We read this and it's like, that just seems weird, you know? He's, he's healing all these people. Crowds have followed Him everywhere. Multitudes are following Him. He's, he's healing all these people. He heals the daughter of Jairus. News is spreading. These blind men show up. They're, they're shouting out to Him. He just ignores them. Keeps on walking. Goes into the house. Once they're inside the house, then He heals them and He says, look, you better not say a word about this. In, in so many words. So what is it? The question we ask here is, why is He doing that? What is it about these men that's different than all the other miracles He's performed? Everybody else had come to Him with faith. Everybody else needed a miracle and He did it. So what is different about these blind men that is, is, is not there with everybody else? And the only difference that I can see is that these blind men address Jesus in a way that nobody else has addressed Him yet. They called Him Son of David. In other words... The Messiah in the strictest Jewish sense. If Jesus, out on the street walking with the crowds following him, had responded when they said, Son of David, he said, Yeah. All the crowd would have heard David or heard Jesus affirming. He said, He's the Son of David. He said, He's the Messiah. Now, up until this point, He's doing miracles, He's doing these things, and, and people are just kind of left to make up their own assumptions. Some people are just out to get a miracle, some people just want to argue with this teaching. But they would have seen that he is affirming his messiahship. Now, once inside, he can heal them, tell them not to say anything. These men now know. We called him son of David. We asked for something. He did it. This, this is the messiah. And, and so he's silencing them in order to keep this news that I claim, Jesus is saying, you need to be quiet because now you know that I am who you said I am. You said son of David. That's me. You said Messiah, that's me. And he's, he's silencing that. Now, if we, if we go to another story, in Luke's account of the events following the healing of Peter's mother, mother-in-law, listen, this will be up here. The sun was setting. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Don't speak. He rebuked them because the reason was they knew he was the Christ. And what does Christ mean? Messiah. 
They knew he was the Messiah, therefore they must be silenced. These men know Jesus is the Messiah, therefore they must be silenced. Now the question is why? If he came as the Messiah, Matthew wants his readers to know he's the Messiah. We know he's the Messiah. Why is Jesus trying to keep this news on the, on the, on the down low at this point? Listen to Matthew 26, verses 63 through 66. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. The reason that Jesus was crucified is because he said he was the Messiah. And the Jews, the religious leaders, found that detestable. Therefore, he must die. That's what's happening here. Had word gotten out sooner that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, Jesus would have been crucified earlier. His ministry would have been shorter. He would not have accomplished everything that he accomplished in his earthly ministry. So the reason Jesus is keeping these men silent is because the extent of his ministry depends on it. It's not my time yet. He says that elsewhere. My time has not yet come. Eventually, when all things Work out. His work is finished. Everything's going to come together. Just as God had determined beforehand for it to take place. And Jesus would be handed over. And he would be crucified on the cross at exactly the right time. But until then, he tells these men, be quiet. He is controlling and overseeing the events that will lead to his own death. And then verse 31 says, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So they didn't listen. They told. Because of Jesus' charge to them, perhaps they were a little more discreet than they would have been. They didn't run out screaming at the Messiah's in here. Perhaps their excitement over being healed, coupled with, well, he did just tell us to be quiet led them to tell exactly as many people as they were supposed to tell at exactly the right time and exactly the right places. And the news spread exactly as it was supposed to spread. That's what Jesus is doing. He is overseeing the events that will lead to His own death. He has authority to raise the dead, cast out demons, calm the sea, open blind eyes. He has the authority over the events that will lead to His own murder. And that's the story. That's the end of that little, little story as, as Matthew records it. So that's the physical story. That's what happened in history. Now we come back to the spiritual truth. Sure, he healed that blind or those blind man, men, but what does that have to do with me? I'm not blind. These men followed Jesus. They exemplified their faith by following Him. They confirmed their faith by affirming who Jesus was. He's the Messiah. He is Lord. They trust Him. Here's the thought. How did they know Jesus was the Messiah? How did they know anything about Jesus? They hadn't seen any of His miracles. They hadn't 
felt Him. They hadn't smelled Him. They hadn't tasted Him. The only other sense that's left is what? Hearing. They had heard about Jesus. They heard, and that led them to the, the faith. This is that man that we heard about. And then they start yelling, Son of David. And they start screaming, they follow Him because of what they heard. They had seen nothing. They had just heard. Now listen to this passage from Romans 10 and just imagine that this is just talking about a couple of blind guys. Romans 10 beginning in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Or the word about the Messiah. Now this passage is about salvation. The gospel going forth. Opening up blind spiritual eyes. To the truth of the gospel. Sight. is never mentioned. They don't have to see. It's through hearing. Hearing the gospel. A person must hear the gospel as it's preached. And as the gospel is preached, Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. As it goes forth, it opens blind eyes that had never seen. All of a sudden they see. It opens dead hearts. And God opens and does this through the power of the proclaimed gospel. This miracle of these two blind men, as they come to Jesus and they're... they're Affirming he is high and we are low. We need mercy and he's the one that can give us mercy. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He is our Lord. We believe that he has the power in himself to do this. And then he touches them and gives them sight. This miracle is, is just a perfect picture of what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. And God works through the gospel to open blind eyes. So that people can see. The holiness of God, the beauty of Christ, as that spotlight comes on, they are illuminated. They see how we see how sinful we are, realize I need mercy, and we call out for mercy. That is the power of the gospel as it goes forth. This is a, a perfect picture of, of what happens when the gospel goes forth, even in 2014 and into the future. And that gospel is this. We were all created in the image of God to worship God and honor God with every ounce of our being, with every second of our lives, and yet we have all turned aside. We do our own thing. We walk away. We want to worship ourselves. Because God is good and God is holy, He must punish that. He cannot allow that defilement and that sin in His presence. He has to punish it. But because He loves us. He sent His Son on our behalf to, to live in our place, to die on the cross, absorb His wrath for our sin, take on Himself the judgment of our sin in our place. And so if we will trust in Jesus in our place, His life in our place, His death in our place, 
We no longer stand to be judged by God. Our sin is taken away. And we don't just come back up to neutral with God. We are actually imputed the righteousness of Jesus. So His life is given to us. So we go beyond good people to heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. We have His righteousness. We stand before God as perfect if we will trust in His sacrifice. If we, ha- if we will trust in, in Jesus as our substitute. See, the gospel has this power to convert the sinner, to, to comfort the saint. Us Christians, we get together and we say, yes, that's me. That's what I did. That's what I love. That's, that's what I am, am here for. That's what brought me here. I, I was saved by that and I stand in that and I continue in that and, and I love that, that gospel. So if you're not a Christian, I would plead today, be reconciled to God. Trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian, praise God for the gospel. Your eyes have been opened through the power of the gospel. Let's pray.